This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Many people search for heavenly bliss on earth, allured by all the world has to offer. In Paradiso, the third volume of his masterpiece, The Divine Comedy, Dante corrects our lack of vision, showing us that heavenly paradise is more real and fulfilling than anything we have experienced or even dreamt of here on earth. Tune in as we speak with Father Paul Pearson about his recent book, Spiritual Direction from Dante, Yearning for Paradise. We will explore Dante's Paradiso as an invitation to eternal happiness. You're listening to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. And I'm your host, Michael Morales. Father Paul Pearson was ordained to priesthood in 1985 and serves as Dean of St. Philip's Seminary, run by the Oratorians in Toronto. Father Paul, welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies. Thank you very much. Thank you, Michael. So, Father Paul, we've had you on the show a few times already related to Inferno and then Purgatorio, but would you remind our listeners of who you are and what you do? Yes, I'm a, I'm a Catholic priest, part of the oratory of St. Philip Neri, um, who's from Florence like Dante is, and uh, I'm now the superior of the community here in Toronto, and I run St. Philip Seminary, and I've been teaching there now for, just finished my 38th year, um, and uh, I teach philosophy and theology, but as a sort of sidelight for the seminars, for the seminarians, I've been teaching since 1990 seminars on Dante's Divine Comedy, and that's really where these books have arisen from. They really are a sort of way of dive into this reading aloud and listening to Dante and responding to and commenting as we go, and so that's really where these books come from. So I'm here in Toronto, Canada, and running the seminary full-time in, in a community of 12 priests and three brothers. But I, 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 don't, I don't go anywhere. I don't do anything except preach and teach and read Dante. So, <laughs> Whether in terms of theology or even the aesthetics of poetry, Paradiso surpasses the previous two volumes of Dante's comedy, and yet it is likely the least read. Dante seems to hint at this reality in his opening lines of Canto II, when he writes of his audience as the few, the few who feed on the bread of angels. Why do you think Paradiso is the least appreciated of the canticles? I think there there are two different sorts of reasons for that. The first is a sort of uh, literary reason. And I think that there's so much drama in Inferno and Purgatorio. You're on a journey, and that journey is fraught with difficulties. And especially in Inferno, you, you feel like you're, you're taking your life in your own hands. There's none of that drama in, in, in Paradiso. You're there. You've arrived. You're in the presence of the truth. You're in the presence of absolute security. There's nothing that can go wrong. And so 
we've taken out the element of drama and we've taken out the idea of being on a journey now because we've really reached the, the destination. And for, I think, most human beings, we do fall into the trap of thinking it is better to journey than to arrive. And I never quite got that since I hate car trips. Uh, but, uh, I was always the one who was car sick in the backseat. So I just wanted to get there. Uh, but So I think there's something about this. The, the wonderful drama of, of the journey in Inferno and Purgatorio has given way to something which is far more intellectual and more a, a ongoing discussion, uh, really a theological discourse with these saints in heaven. And uh, although that's could can be wonderful in itself, and it's as you said, it's it's beautifully described and amazingly crafted, it really s- could be set to music. It's so beautiful. Um, on the other hand, there is there's not a sort of underlying narrative drama. I think on the other side, people have this idea that heaven is well a sort of consolation prize and this is something i I bring up in the introduction i think for most of us like the far side cartoon that said you know i wish i brought a magazine because the guy sitting on the cloud is sort of bored and we think about this place where there's no narrative where there's no drama where there's no journey as being a static dull sort of place and as a result, I think most people, when they think about heaven, think about it as the sort of consolation prize. If I have to die, and I'd rather not, if I have to die, if my only choices are heaven and hell, I choose heaven. But I would choose earth over heaven. I think for most people, even those who identify themselves as Christians, that choosing earth over heaven is a reality that is something that as believers we have to address. The Apostle Paul wrote that to depart in death and be with Christ in heaven is better by far than life in this present world. In the early pages of your book, you observe how we can easily forget that there is a better world in heaven with God and eventually in the new heavens and earth with God, and that Christianity has an otherworldly focus. You've captured this in your book's title, Yearning for Paradise. Would you expand on this idea and how Dante's Paradiso can help us recapture that focus on heaven? Yeah. I mean, obviously, we are designed for being here on earth, and our time on earth is something which is providential, given to us by God, given to us for a reason, so that we can actually make this journey to heaven. So, obviously, the journey is sort of built into our spiritual DNA. And so, there's nothing wrong with that. We shouldn't just stop doing things. We shouldn't stop teaching classes or stop trying to grow in virtue. All of those things are things we need to do. We should keep reading scripture. We should keep worshiping. All those things are what you do on the way. But being a pilgrim people is not supposed to be a permanent occupation. You're supposed to be on pilgrimage in order to get someplace. And so, and I think the way that Dante begins to reflect on things is, and this is especially true in the first half of, of Paradiso, when he's in the spheres of heaven, which are under the shadow of the earth. And in these, these people have loved God through something earthly, but they let the earthly things take a little bit of control. People who are like rulers, who, of course, let their day job get in the way of their Christian job, or um, lovers who let their loved one become uh, something that sort of sur- sur- planted, uh, surpassed and 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 took the place of God in their lives now and then. Not so that they turned away and sinned, but it was just a matter of emphasis. They weren't giving God the fullness. So we see here that 
we give ourselves to good things in this world. And Dante's point here is that, yes, but when you do that, there's always something which isn't enough. Go back to St. Augustine's, our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. That we've been designed for God, we're made in his image and likeness. And because of that, nothing earthly can fill my desires. I can sort of distract them for a little while, <laughs> and we're really good at that. But I'm not, I can't rest in it. It's not enough. And we see a world now filled with restless people. People who are running after distractions, just trying to keep their minds off the fact that in the inside there's no peace and there's no rest. And Dante's trying to pick at that and say, yeah, you, you're, even if you're doing good things, if you're doing good earthly things, they'll never be enough. Paradiso begins with a rapturous description of the glory of God. Yeah. How does this topic, God's glory, relate to the rest of Paradiso? Well, Dante is so careful about crafting this. It's that mo- opening scene, you, you're flooded with light. You have the Gloria as the, the opening words. And it's so overwhelming that you don't even know where you are. You're, you've lost all your perspective. You're just overwhelmed by the light. Reminds me of St. Paul on the road to Damascus, where the light becomes almost a force that he feels. Well, in heaven, the agenda is set by God. We're not entering into a nice earthly club med in heaven, a spiritual version of of an all-inclusive vacation. We're entering into the joy of your master. And so heaven is defined by this presence of God, and I'm entering into him. And so it's all defined by him. So the fact that it starts off with this glory of God and ends up with Dante in the presence of God keeps this theme that heaven is about God. And if we're about going to heaven, then we have to be ready to submerge ourselves in the truth of God, in the presence of God, too. It's not enough just to think about it. We need to enter into it. And that's really where I think the life, not just of study, but the life of prayer becomes a preparation for for heaven. And you see in, in all their different ways, these souls in heaven pour themselves out and lose themselves in the presence of God and are happy to do that because they're in the presence of something far greater than themselves. They're honored to be there. Dante meets some of the people right at the beginning, um, and they're in the lowest part of heaven. And Dante is rather ambitious, and he goes up to them and says, you know, doesn't it bother you that you're in the lowest sphere of heaven? And I think he's worried he's going to have hurt their feelings, but he's still wondering about this that he has to ask. Doesn't it bother you? They said, no, 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 it doesn't bother us at all. It doesn't bother us at all because we're, we're in heaven. We are so fortunate to be here. And wherever we are in heaven, God is there. And that's what defines it for us. I've always been amazed at the scene you just depicted. Years ago, I read one Christian writer who said that given his sinful nature, he could always portray characters worse than himself, but he could never portray characters holier than himself. Dante, however, does a profound work in depicting the saints in heaven. Not only are they content with God himself and their place along Dante's journey, but in selfless love of neighbor, they're actually happier 
because others have a better place, as it were. Do you think Dante's portrayal of heavenly life was intended as exemplary for God's people below? Well, certainly he wants us to begin to imitate. And I think the the common project that you feel in heaven, this not taking pride in what you've done, but being able to lose yourselves. I love the the area where the, the holy rulers are. And now they've sort of lost their individuality entirely. And they're just like a little pixel forming these big pictures in heaven. And they're happy to be that little pixel in the big picture. And the eagle, the fleur-de-lis, and they're, they're sort of flashing these patterns. And it's very, quite, very interesting. It could be good computer-generated graphics, I think. Um, but the, they've lost that, that need to put themselves forward. And the idea that somehow we could take real joy in the joy of our neighbor is something I think we've, we've lost track of. And as a result, joy becomes a competitive sport. Happiness becomes something which I have to take, and it means taking it away from you to have, have it for myself. It becomes a competition rather than um, a, a group endeavor. And Dante's idea is somehow that real happiness only happens in the context of a united and happy community. The interaction in heaven between the Dominicans and the Franciscans also seems exemplary, aimed at pursuing peace and reconciliation. It is. I think it is. And, you know, uh, there, and that little, in that circle of the theologians, the circle of the sun, um, you have Dante having St. Thomas praise St. Francis, and then you have St. Bonaventure praising St. Dominic. So they, and you know, they, in, on the feast days of these saints, they have people from the other communities come and preach for their, for the feast days. So it's tradition that a Dominican would have a Franciscan come in and preach on the free feast of St. Dominic. So actually that is part of the tradition of the Franciscans and Dominicans in real life. It doesn't always work so well as it did there. The other thing I like is that even within the sphere of the Dominican circle, St. Thomas ends up being next to Sider of Brabant, who got St. Thomas condemned. He was a big player in the 1274 condemnations of St. Thomas Aquinas. He was he's not quite bete noir, but he was a real thorn in the flesh. St. Bonaventure is next door to Joachim of Fiore, one of the spiritual Franciscans. And, Don, and, and Bonaventure, as the head of the Franciscans, spent much of his last years trying to control this group. And once again, Joachim was a pain in the neck. And who do they end up with next as their next door neighbor in heaven? These people who were they were fighting with here on earth. And the idea that somehow it's all come together in, in heaven, it's all come out in the wash, is something I think we can we can learn from. In the Inferno, Dante the Pilgrim had entered Hades under the words, quote, abandon all hope, end quote. But in Paradiso Canto 25, when St. James examines Dante on the virtue of hope, Beatrice says that no son of the church below has a greater hope than Dante. Why is hope such a pervasive theme in Paradiso? Well, you know, hope is something I think is one of the virtues that gets most, is most misunderstood. We talk a lot about faith and charity, but hope really gets left out. It's sort of a wicked not wicked stepsister, but the ignored stepsister. And really, we don't talk about it much. And when we do, we reduce it to sort of a mushy feeling. This feeling of, I don't know, sort of confidence. But hope is something 
theologically way more than that. And certainly when St. Paul talks about hope and when St. Peter does in his letter, you know, be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have within you. They mean something far more rigorous than a warm and fuzzy feeling about the fact that God will take care of me. It's, and it's certainly not a matter of, sort of self-hypnosis where I just say, trust, 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 until I do. It's something far bigger than that. It's based upon evidence and experience. And for us, hope is supposed to be based upon our, the history of our own interaction with God. And so I, if I'm going to trust, I have to be able to look back on my history and say, God's taken good care of me. He's intervened so many times to get me where I am today. Is he going to waste that investment now? No. So I could expect, given my past, to be able to count on God in the future. It's not a blind thing. It's based upon an experiential interaction with God that he's been in my life. Until I have that experience of God, hope is just a seed. It isn't really developed. When Dante is in hell, he doesn't really have any hope at all because his experience of God is now broken off, broken off because of his sins. This is why when we hear people give testimony to God's actions in their lives, it lifts us up so much because we say, ah, God is at work. And why does that make us smile? It always does. And the reason is because that's what gives us hope. Now, Dante wasn't hopeful by nature. He is the most hopeful, not because of what he was back on earth, but because of what he's become by this time in heaven. Because he's had an experience of God's intervention like nobody else in this world. God literally dragged him out of hell and took him on a field trip to heaven. Heaven conspired, the Blessed Virgin Mary and Lucy and Beatrice got together and concocted this plan. Dante knows firsthand that heaven is intervening in his life. Now, I think we could all know that if we actually reflected on God's action in our lives well enough. But for Dante, it's been right in his face in a dramatic way. And for that reason, I think he has hope in a unique way too. So the hope comes from a real lived experience of God. Dante now has that lived experience, and he wants now to take that lived experience back to his readers. And that's why St. Peter calls him the missionary of hope. He's supposed to go back and, and give this hope, this, this confidence to other people, a confidence not based upon just a vague idea, but upon the lived experience of God's action in our lives. As you explain in your preface, it's easy to be engaged and entertained by Dante's skill as a poet and all the facets of his poem, whether political or mythological. But his basic motive in writing was spiritual, presenting himself as a religious everyman, leading others on a journey to God. Now, the end and new beginning of Dante's journey is the beatific vision of God. What's the message here for us? Well, I mean, it starts off with the fact that this is what we're created for in the first place. Otherwise, it really couldn't be our end. So we're designed with this in mind. And that's the story of the beginning of, of Scripture, isn't it? The book of Genesis tells us that we're created in the image and likeness of God, which means that because we're made in a particular way, our fulfillment is going to be of a particular sort. Because we're made in God's image, 
we can't be happy without God. That's that Augustinian idea that our hearts are made for God, and as a result, they are restless until they rest in God. So I think that's the first thing that that is important here, that the beatific vision is the end of this journey. But I, I think it also then shapes the way that we should think about things in this life, that things take meaning in this life because they are an instrument towards heaven. So if somebody is doing good work, well, if I can do that work as in something I offer to God or in union with God, that work now becomes something transformed. For a Christian, it's something different. It's now part of my everyday offering that I give to God. For people who get married, the marriage itself becomes something that you do as a way of serving God. You love God in your spouse and in your children. So loving your family isn't something different from loving God, but something through which you love God. So this idea that the beatific vision is the goal and end of everything allows us to see all of our life through a different lens. And as a result, there's there are all things, that, all things except sin itself, can actually become a pathway to holiness. St. Francis de Sales, one of members of my community back in the, in the 1600s, used to say that there are no pathways in this world except sinful ones that stand in the way of holiness. And so from all of our diversity, we can use our what we're doing, our teaching, our working in a factory, our being a homemaker, our being parents, our being priests, and all of those things can now turn its attention onto the beatific vision and become a, a pathway to it. And as we see in the sort of geography of heaven, in one sense, all roads lead to that, that heaven is, in, in a sense, the, not the outer edge of the universe, but the center of the universe. Dante's had this picture of things where he keeps going further and further and further away from Earth. And you sort of imagine yourself passing Pluto and going off to Alpha Centauri, and you see Earth getting smaller and smaller, and he can just barely pick out where Florence is. And so he thinks of himself as in the outer space. But what he begins to recognize when he has this vision that everything turns inside out, and he recognizes that all along, he's been on the outskirts. And what he's done by coming up to heaven is come to the center of things. It's, it's, it's funny, we make such a big deal about the mid, uh, people in the Middle Ages arguing for an, an, uh, a geocentric universe. Well, spiritually, Dante's not going to buy that. He says, no, no, Christians are not geocentric. We're heaven-centric. Heaven is the, is the core for us. So everything takes its meaning insofar as it can be a means or an obstacle to heaven. And for Dante, that's going to give a different way of looking at everything in our lives, a different way of discerning about our lives. If I, when I was deciding to become a professor, I could decide that because it might be a good way to have a good job and support my family. And sometimes that's true. Um, sometimes that's not. Um, I could do it in order to be ambitious, or I can do it because I feel it's like my calling, my vocation to teach. Now, those first motivations are understandable, but they are pathways to holiness. And Dante is trying to get us to see all things now 
in this new light of heaven. And by doing so, he allows us to see even the good things we're doing in a different way. That even the good things are probably done for motives that are a little mixed. Um, So that bright light of heaven is, is is a light that shines not only on on us, but shines upon our lives and makes us see our lives in a different way. So the beatific vision as our end means that we view everything else as a means to an end. And it's going to be a good or bad thing, depending on whether it's a good or bad way of getting to heaven. I tell my seminarians when they're thinking about, are you going to be, am I going to be a priest or am I going to be, get married? And I say, well, do whatever God wants you to do. I'll be at your ordination. I'll say your wedding, you know, whatever it is, just figure out what God wants. Well, how do I know what God wants? Well, the answer is because you end up loving best in that way. It'll be the best pathway for you to holiness. And that's all we should want for anybody. So once we see our lives in light of the beatific vision, everything becomes a means to an end. Yeah. There's, there's in that way, not, not much worth going to the stake over except this one thing, because it's the goal. Everything else is just a, it's just a pathway. And that, that makes Christians different. That's what made the early martyrs so frightening to the Romans. Like, who are these people who don't seem to be afraid to die? The answer is the only people who aren't afraid to die are people who know that they're not going to die. They're going to lose their earthly life, but they're moving on to something else. And this is just a stepping stone. And if it's a fast stepping stone, that's going to get you there quickly and surely bring it on. We look at life differently. His life on earth was filled with turmoil, betrayal, loss, heartbreak, political upheaval. And yet when Dante looks back to the earth, he sees this little ball, he smiles, and he calls it a threshing floor. It's the place of sifting for either heaven or hell. Yeah. And, you know, the first time he looks back, I think there's still a little bit of, ooh, I'm so far away. And he's just getting his perspective. But the second time he looks back and realizes, that's not where my life is. It's, it's, it's so insignificant that he just turns away easily. Part of being a pilgrim people, I think, too, is that we, we, we naturally tend to put down roots. We naturally tend to want to build our kingdom here. And obviously, getting, using this as a means to heaven requires us to do some building, some working. We have to enter into what's happening here in order to make it a proper pathway to heaven. But I'm passing through. Somebody asked me once when I was starting to build a seminary, what would happen if in 20 years it was all closed? I said, well, it'd be closed. (laughs) And they'd use it for something else. (laughs) Do God's will in the moment. Do what you need to do. And if it lasts, it lasts. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. I hope it gets me to heaven and gets a few of my students to heaven too. And if that works, it works. Pilgrim people are different. Yeah, but my goodness, we, we try hard to feather our nest and settle right down. So Dante gets commissioned in Paradiso to write the Divine Comedy. He gets commissioned by an ancestor. This is when we find out where the Divine Comedy came from. Would you open this scene up for us? Sure. I mean, da- Dante, it, it, first of all, his, um, his, his, um, his ancestor, Cacciaguera, and then later on, St. Peter, 
give him a special sort of commission. And this commission is to go back to earth and take the, take the special message home. And the special message is both a message of focusing on heaven, but also because that can often sound almost negative as though you ought to be stricter with yourself. You ought to be more disciplined. You ought to be tougher. That doesn't seem to be what they're asking for at all. They're actually asking for us to be more focused on the fact that heaven is on our side. Heaven is constantly intervening. We should feel carried by the heavenly host. And for Dante to go back as this missionary of hope, to carry this special vocation with him, which he can do because he's lost so much, he needs to tell them not merely let go of your sins, but hold on to God. And I think sometimes when we're telling people, we're trying to get people to turn around and convert, we try to let them make them let go. Well, letting go is not the biggest part. Holding on is the big part. You let go of other stuff so that you can hold on to God. If you just let go, you're going to be floating. And Dante's trying to help them grab on and say, no, you are important. You are what heaven is all about. Heaven is conspiring for you too. I'm not unique about this. And you need to live with that confidence that they're talking about you in heaven too. My walking through here and getting the, the VIP treatment is not because I'm Dante. It's because I'm a soul. If you were here, you'd get the same treatment. You might not be going back to earth, but you'd get the same treatment. And you know, we believe that that the heavenly hosts are intervening and that they take an interest. And I think that idea that somehow this dignity of the individual, which is just beginning to be emphasized at the beginning of the Renaissance, Dante is right at the cutting edge of that. And he really sees this individual dignity as something that heaven is worth expending great resources on. Heaven is, is, thinks that that's worth it. And I think for many of his messenger, many of his, his listeners, that's going to be a rather surprising message. They think of themselves as, well, serfs, as individuals in the crowd. And I think he's really trying to break away from that message. Our conversion, Christ's salvation, is a reorientation back to the purpose for which we were created, to know God, to love and be loved by God, and to see him. I, I'm reminded of this too when I read the, the Psalms, especially Psalm 149, which is one of my favorites. The Lord takes delight in his people. The idea that somehow I'm not just a, a, a bad boy in God's books, but that whatever I do, I'm always his. And that part of the reason he's getting me into heaven is not because he's being merciful, which he is. <laughs> it's because he wants me to be there. And that's a message I don't think most people would even really believe. That God wants me with him. That's life-changing. Isn't it? I, 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 I hear that and think, no, we, don't, we go through our, this crazy world of ours without feeling wanted sometimes. And to think the creator of the universe wants me. 
and is willing to do things to make that happen, to make me be with him. And that I think is, is part of what Dante is, is trying to, to, to sneak into people's minds. And although that's something which we would be more familiar with after, living after the um, many centuries focused on individual dignities and rights and things, for Dante's readers, that would be far more earth-shattering in the good sense of the word. Mm-hmm. I like earth-shattering things because I want to get rid of all this stuff and focus on heaven. So. so, Father Paul, you've completed your writing on Dante's comedy. Do you have any further writing or other projects on the horizon? Not just at the moment. My my editor was asking me that. I was, he said, what are you planning next? I said, I was thinking of a cruise. <laughs> but it's been an overwhelming project, not just in terms of the amount of work, but just emotionally to go through it all. And that's why when I'm talking to people who are trying to read it, I say, you know, listen, do a little bit at a time. A little bit at a time. Because it's meant to be overwhelming. It's meant to be something that hits you personally and takes a little bit out of you. And so I mean, you've broken it up not only into the cantos, but each canto is usually broken up into three or four or five parts. And I encourage people just to read like one of those little chunks of a canto a day. That's plenty. If nothing particularly hits you, go ahead and read another one. But don't try to zip through it. It's, that's not the way that it's going to have the biggest effect on you, which I think is also the best way of reading scripture and then not trying to plow through, hit until something hits you. St. Philip Neri, the founder of my community, says, you should read scripture like we eat food. When we find something nourishing, we stop and we chew. We don't just keep biting. And I, I think this idea of, of reading little bits and allowing it to stick in our heads, to infiltrate through our imaginations, to allow ourselves to react to it and to come at it personally and say, what, is, what does this mean about me? Um, so, yes, it's sort of an exhausting book, but in a really wonderful way. It's like one of those movies that you watch and at the end you sort of go, uh, it's cathartic. And, but I think for that reason, it was, it's, it was a, bit of, a bit of a journey to write, but also I think probably a bit of a journey to read. So I encourage people to take it slowly. I'm I'm planning on taking it slowly too. It has been a pleasure talking about Dante's Paradiso with you, Father Paul. Thank you for being with us. It's it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. And I I hope these books will help people enter into Dante's world because I think for many of them, taking up Dante's text is is just daunting. And unless they can do that in a university course, they tend to, to, to opt out. So I hope that this will give people who don't have that opportunity to study it with a teacher to go through it and experience it for themselves. Friends, you've been listening to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. Until next time, goodbye.